You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning. Hey, welcome to Kingsway. If you're visiting with us today, we're really glad you're here on this fine Father's Day. Hopefully, you have a good dad in your life that you can reach out to and say, thanks for being a good dad. It might be a son, a brother, maybe your own dad if you're still around, or maybe a dad you know. So just take some time, reach out. Somebody told me once on uh, Mother's Day, we say, moms, you're the best. And on Father's Day, we say, come on, dad, suck it up. So uh, anyway, we're really glad you're here, dads. If it weren't for you, none of us would be here. So we're glad that there are dads in the world. As we're finishing up this series, I want to bring you up to speed real quick on where we've been. The whole concept comes from this book. The Art of Neighboring, I really recommend you, you get it. It's some of it's super obvious. If you've been a believer for any length of time, it's not like you're going to read anything in here and go, oh, I'd never thought of that. You're going to read it and go, oh, why haven't I been doing that? It's more of that kind of book. And in the book, one of the authors, Jay, says, our purpose in life is to love God and love others. So that's what this series is all about. Like, how do we find that conviction to love God and to love others? others. If in any way you've had a story that you'd like to share with us about as you're trying to live out this principle, I've had a few people send me messages, emails, or texts, or whatevers, and whatevers, that's a good, good word, right? Whatevs. And uh, just let me know stories they have. But those stories were so personal and private in one way or another, I didn't feel like I could share them uh, on, on without getting their other people's blessing and permission. So that's why I didn't have it. But if you have a story you want to share with us, uh, text the word neighbor at any time to 317-565-4911. And we'll take your story and look for a way to just share it and encourage everybody else and maybe what you're doing. Maybe it's a way that you're finding to love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself. All right. So as we jump into today, what I want to do is really try to take out one of the biggest reasons we don't love our neighbors. And that reason is fear, fear. It may be fear of what happens if they don't respond well. It may be fear of uh, what if they, uh, they get mad or what if I don't know what to say or what if they're Republicans or what if they're Democrats and what if, what if they believe something that I don't believe and they start to say things in front of my kids that like is not at all what we believe? What if they have a lifestyle that is completely the opposite of where I believe a person ought to be? What do I do then? What if they borrow my tools and never give them back? Some of you know these neighbors, they're like me. And uh, the goal of today is, I wanna start with this theory, like what if we really didn't let fear be a driving force. What would we do different? All right, with that in mind, let's go ahead and jump into Luke chapter 7. If you know where that is in the Bible, feel free to join us. If not, everything that I'm reading will be on the screen here. But I know the mind wanders. Even as fast as I talk, the mind wanders. And so if your mind wanders, let it wander to the text and just poke around a little bit. And then when you come back, we'll, we'll join wherever verse I'm in. All right, ready? Luke chapter 7, verse 37 says this. A woman in that town, so Jesus traveling from town to town, who lived a sinful life, learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, before we go to the next verse, let's just unpack what's happening. Jesus would travel from town to town, take some of the disciples with him. And Jesus often ate with people who were different than him. That's one of the first things you ought to know. In Jesus' disciples, even just the 12, there's a wide variety of people. And these people outside of a relationship with Jesus would have never hung out together. You've got some guys who are friends. They're, bisher they're bishermen. I don't know what that is. They're fishermen. And some of them are brothers. That's a bisherman. And they, uh, they have a business together. And others, uh, like one gentleman, he's a zealot. Now, if you don't know what a zealot is, the best way for me to describe this is it's a radical political position in Jesus' day. So imagine... 
If you're, let's just say you're a Republican, this would be like a radical Democrat. If you're a Democrat, this would be like a radical Republican. That person who's the opposite extreme from you as far as they could possibly go, they're in that camp with Jesus. One of the guys, a guy by the name of Matthew, personally the best named disciple there was, he is a tax collector. Now in our day, we may joke about the IRS and taxes and we don't like them, but in Jesus' day, people despise tax collectors. In fact, they were in their own category of sinner. They were Jewish people who worked for the Roman government. The Roman government was uh, oppressive over the Jewish people. They were in leadership over them, but oppressing them with crazy heavy taxes. And then this person, the tax collector, could add his own fees on top of Rome's fees. And since he was one of the Jews, they viewed him as a betrayer and a deceiver and a ripper offer, which isn't a word. But that's kind of the perspective. And Jesus had one of those guys in the disciple group. You'll often see in Jesus' ministries, he's hanging out talking to these kind of people, Pharisees. He's at a Pharisee's house doing lunch, meaning there were probably other Pharisee buddies around. It says eating at the Pharisee's house. He's probably the local guy in this particular town. He's the guy, and everybody knows who he is. We're going to learn his name in a minute. His name is Simon, but we're going to get to that in just a minute. And he's eating at his house. He's probably invited his buddies over because this is a big deal. The teacher is here, this guy that everybody's talking about, and I'm going to have him in our house. And in walks this woman who's lived a sinful life. What has she done? We don't know. You can maybe make up some things in your mind that you might think of. But imagine a small town, probably small, uh, not by today's standards per se, maybe a few hundred, maybe a few thousand people at most. Everybody knows everything about everybody. My, my context for this would be when I went over to visit in India and visited Care India, and you would go into these villages. I mean, literally, you'd travel through kind of like nowhere, lots of trees, whatever, dirt roads, and all of a sudden, you'd come upon a town, and when you showed up, everybody knew you were there, everybody, and the entire town like gathered to watch you come in, especially kind of as the white... Um, Midwestern, whatever, you know, Caucasian guy, I walk in, it's like, everybody's like gathered around, like, ooh, look, it's a white person. And I know it sounds crazy, but it's like, they're not used to this, but everybody knows you're there. Everybody knows everybody else's business. Everybody knows what's going on. And it's that kind of small town feel. Now, that's important for what's about to happen next. Verse 38, as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, I'll get to that. Like that sentence is weird, but I'll get to that. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. A few things here. Number one, it was standard, and it's actually Old Testament law, to wash your hands when you came into someone's house, just to clean off your hands. This is an agricultural society by and large. Animals and, and farming was a huge part of the normal everyday life. So people walked everywhere they went, unless they had money, then they could maybe have a donkey or something like that to ride on or help carry their stuff. But still, by and large, they did a lot of walking. So their feet were sweaty, dirty, often muddy. Stuff would get caked on there. And occasionally, there would be stuff along the road from the animals that they might step in. So if you were a wealthy person, and almost guaranteed, the Pharisee would have been, I should have said this, a Pharisee would have been the religious elite of that day. The most moral, the best of the best of the best. In fact, at one point, Jesus says, if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be better than the Pharisees because the Pharisees were the best of the best. Jesus is saying, good luck, you're going to be better than them. So 
These people had resources, they had wealth, they had money, and they loved to show it off to everybody. And if you had money and you had resources, you could have guests over, you could buy them lunch, and you could afford to wash off people's feet. In fact, you probably had a servant who worked in the house, and their whole job was to clean off people's feet when they came into the home. And so Jesus now is here, and it says specifically, she stood behind him at his feet. Well, how can she be behind him at his feet? Does that just mean she's standing literally behind him? Possibly. More possibly. In Jesus' day, uh, they ate kind of reclining at tables. And so they had like cushions they would use to prop themselves up on one side, and the tables would be low to the ground. If you saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson hypothesized because Jesus' dad was a carpenter that Jesus probably was a carpenter. And therefore, in the movie, Mel Gibson had Jesus building the first set of like table and chairs, if you kind of remember that. That's because in that day, nobody used tables and chairs. It was just Mel Gibson having fun. We don't really have any reason to believe that Jesus was the first person to create tables and chairs. And in the movie, they have this playful moment and Mary kind of makes fun of him like, who in the world is gonna use that? Well, because they would recline at the table. And so it wouldn't have been weird or uncommon had she been at his feet and he's reclining at the table. Maybe that's what's happening here. And his feet are caked in sweat and mud and Stuff, and she takes her hair. She starts to wipe his feet, and she's weeping, and the tears are falling on his feet. And she takes out this alabaster jar of perfume. She's pouring it on his feet. This would be weird in any culture. This is not like, oh, people in that day did weird things, and today this is, no, no, no. This was weird then, too. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is. She's a sinner. Whatever exactly this woman had done was so prominent in the community, everybody knew. You know what happens when that happens? People treat you different, don't they? You can imagine as perhaps husbands and wives walked down the street and they saw her coming towards them, maybe they crossed to the other side of the road to avoid coming in contact with her. Maybe they never even looked at her. As kids went by, perhaps whispers went out. That's just In the marketplace, when she went to buy things, Perhaps nobody wanted to be seen and doing business with her. If you remember, there's one story in the book of John where you learn about a woman who has a very immoral life, probably similar to this lady. And she comes to water her animals in the heat of the day. Nobody comes in the heat of the day, but that's why she's there. She just wants to avoid the rumors, the gossip, the whispers, the eyes. She just, just desperately wants to get away from it all. And this woman comes right into the home and begins to wash his feet with her hair and her tears. Now, here's the thing. It's hard to love what you're busy judging. Let that sink in for a minute. This Pharisee can't see this woman, can't love this woman, because he's too busy in his heart condemning her. Now, he's the best of the best of the best. 
He would never in a million years do the kinds of things that this woman has done. Nobody's dismissing what she's done. The Old Testament laws, remember, and a few chapters later, as we've been talking about, where this uh, religious leader asks Jesus, of all the laws, which ones must I do to get eternal life? And Jesus says, love God, love others. That's where this whole concept came from. Nobody's dismissing what she's done. Jesus has never dismissed it, said sin is no longer sin. That's not what's happening here. But what is happening here is Jesus is trying to make a point. People trump behaviors. People trump bad decisions. When I say trump, I mean it in the sense of card playing, like one is bigger than the other, right? People are bigger. But you can't love somebody if you're busy judging them. Simon could have been a great neighbor. Let's just let that sink in for a minute. Verse 40. Jesus answered him. Now, what does that mean? This guy, was he whispering it out loud? Did he actually say it to somebody sitting at the table? Did he think it in his head and Jesus knew it and he just <laughs> addresses it? That ought to be a terrifying moment, right? Simon just has some thoughts and Jesus goes, Simon, I have something to tell you. And Simon says, tell me, teacher. Two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Now let's just pause for a second. A denarii on average is about a day's wages. So 500 denarii, you can just kind of extrapolate out. Let's just call it 18 months, two years worth of wages. The other one's 50. So it's, let's call it 30 to 60 days worth of wages. Now, here's the thing. That kind of breaks down in our society because in that day, you had to work to eat that day. You weren't stockpiling money away for some future day in retirement or savings. There's no welfare program coming in. You worked, you ate. That was for you and your family and anybody who was under your care. By and large, there weren't extra resources. So when we say 18 months to say two years worth of income, we're probably talking about a much larger number because that's just what it would take to pay off your debt, not to count what you would need to put a roof over your head, put food in your belly, put clothes on your back, to do all those things that you have to do just to survive. So we're talking about maybe a two to five year debt to pay off or a lifetime debt to pay off. That helps you get an idea of what we're talking about in culture. But Jesus goes on verse 42, neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Well, it's pretty obvious, right? Like if I have a debt that's gonna take me two to five years to pay you off versus my entire lifetime to pay you off, who's going to be more thankful? I mean, don't get me wrong. I'd love to have that freedom and know, hey, I don't have to pay that anymore, but obviously the one who had the bigger debt he raised. Verse 43, Simon replies, well, I suppose, which I just love that sarcastic kind of, and I don't know if it reads like that in Greek. I'm not a Greek expert. Well, I suppose, it's kind of like somebody's backed in a corner and understands where the discussion is going, but doesn't want to admit that they've defeated, but they've lost. Well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Let's just stop there for a second. Again, if our hypothesis, Jesus is reclining at the table and Simon is probably next to him because it was customary to put the guest, the, the guest of honor right there next to you so everybody could see him. So perhaps he looks at Simon, but now this woman is at his feet and now he turns his eyes and he looks right at her. When was the last time someone looked 
I mean, looked at her, saw her, noticed her, cared about her, and didn't just move on with their day or their life. But he says to Simon, so he's looking at her, but he's talking to him. And I think that is so strategic for Jesus because I think he wants her to know, I see you, I notice you, I value you, I care. See, it's hard to love what you can't see. I read an article a few years ago that um, there's a few Asian countries, but I believe the one I read about was China, that they were having so many car accidents, bike accidents, and people accidents because people were so engaged on their cell phones that they're walking and not paying attention, and they were literally walking out in roads, getting hit by cars, causing accidents, walking into people, fights and things starting out, that they actually built a cell phone walking lane for people to travel in. And there was like this collective, what? You kind of hear it under the breath? That's crazy talk. Come on. When your phone started tracking how long you're on your phone, did you not get your first report and go, well, that can't be right. My kids have to be on that thing. There's no way I'm on it that many hours a day. It is so easy. They've hacked our brains to be on this thing all the time. And when you're staring at something else all the time, for you, it might not be a cell phone or a computer screen or an iPad. It might be a car. Maybe that's your thing. Maybe it's a sport. Maybe that's your thing. But when you're obsessed with that all the time, whatever it is, guess what you aren't looking at? People. And when you aren't looking at people, you don't see. And when you don't see, you miss opportunities. We have a phrase around here we use with our staff. It's heads up, eyes open. Heads up, eyes open. And it's just a little way for us to remind ourselves, pay attention. Remember when you're playing baseball and they'd say, heads up? I never quite understood that phrase. Like, heads up, what's that mean? Well, there's a ball up near. Like, pay attention. Eyes open. Now close your eyes. Look around. I wish I'd had some phenomenal story to share. Most of the stories I have just aren't time yet to share. But I've got one. A few weeks ago, I was with my boys, and we were at the Washington Township little stream there. And we were just playing around, swimming in the water. We were, what we do is we went to PetSmart. We bought these little fishing nets. And we go and try to catch anything, fish, frogs, tadpoles, you name it, leeches. We've got them all. Like we try to catch them all. Some of them, some of them we catch in places we don't want. And we try to, we've got this like, it's like an old cheese ball bin, that bowl, blah, 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 cheese ball bin that we got from Costco. And it's like massive. And so we take that with us and we fill it up with water. And we just put them in and kind of play with them and then dump them all back in. And it's just like our fun little thing. But we were striking out. I mean, there's fish everywhere. You can see them in the water. We just can't catch them. We can't catch them. We can't catch them. Well, this family walks up. There's four of them. Uh, looks like two grandparents two adult people, no kids, and they walk up and it's obvious they're from another nation. I don't know what nation. I'm not even gonna try to guess because I'm terrible at it. And they're playing in the water. And the one lady, the, the adult lady, she's uh, going in and she's with her hands. She's trying to, to, to grab these fish. And all of a sudden she reaches in with her hands, her bare hands, and she catches, I think it was a catfish. I can't remember now. She catches a fish with her bare hands. Why is nobody else impressed? <laughs> And she gets it out and she's like, you know, talking and she's like, look, I got it. And we went over and the boys are like, oh, look, she's showing it to us. And she lets us have the fish. And we stick it in a little jar to swim around. The boys are like, ooh, so excited. We're reaching in, they're touching the fish. So cool. I love raising boys. We're like having a blast. And now we're talking to them and they have a little bit of an accent. They obviously have a different skin color. They, they're clearly not from Indiana. I know that much. And so after we've been talking for a little bit, I just say, hey, can I just ask, where are you guys from? And everything changed. And they said, no. And then they quickly pulled away from us. And shortly thereafter, they left. Now, I've been told many times by uh, my friends of 
different colors and nationalities. Don't ask. And it went through my head. Don't ask. One of my great weaknesses, but also one of my great strengths is I'm eternally curious about everything. Like, I just want to know about everything. I kind of wish I hadn't asked. But here's what I know. Somewhere along the way, they got afraid. If there's something they saw on the news or something they read about somewhere or somebody treated them differently just for the fact that they come from a different country, they have a different color skin, they speak maybe a different language, they spoke good English, but they did not want to engage in that conversation. And I don't know how to fix that in our country, but I know this. Until we start seeing people as human, no different than us, we're gonna have a hard time loving them. If we're busy judging somebody else's sin or actions or behavior, what's different about them than us, we're gonna have a hard time loving them. Even my boys ask me, like, Dad, what was that all about? What's going on? Like, why didn't they? And I said, I don't know. But I'm gonna guess racism in America bit them somewhere. Whether real or perceived, I don't know. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be, at least not for us. Verse 44. Jesus, remember, he's looking at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. I know, collectively we all went, ew, but just stick with the story. Verse 45, you did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. Okay, there's some culture things going on here. Have you ever met somebody from the Middle East, perhaps Italy or or something else? Not all Middle Eastern cultures, but many of them, some of them I should say, not many, some of them will still greet with a kiss today. Uh, I'm Italian, I don't know if you knew that, and uh, my dad still does this periodically. And, you know, if you're not used to that, I kind of thank God that in America we don't do that, but, you know, you ever meet somebody, they greet you at the door, they come up and they kiss you on the cheek, one or the other or both? You ever have that situation? I've had um, some older ladies, None of you have done this in a while. Please don't. Um, they'll like corner you. You're like trying to get to the side. And it's like they've, their cultures, they're going to plant one right on you. And it's like, wow, I'm not okay with that. <laughs> My wife is sitting there going, huh. Certain cultures do this. And in Jesus' day, it was normal for a man to greet a man in this way. Not on the lips, nothing intimate or, or relational about it. It's just a friendly greeting to kiss somebody on the cheek. It was just customary. In fact, even the Bible tells us to greet each other with a holy kiss. And when I was a youth pastor, the teenagers loved to hear that passage. We're like, when do we learn about that one, pastor? The whole idea here is this guy didn't greet Jesus. He didn't show Jesus kindness. He didn't show Jesus favor. He didn't even wash his feet, which was customary. But where's Jesus? He's still at, he's still at lunch. Jesus didn't let the differences between him and the Pharisee keep him from doing lunch. And Jesus didn't let the differences between him and the woman keep him from having a relationship with her. Do you see it? On either end of the spectrum, these are the two far ends of the spectrum. Jesus stands happily in the middle saying, I want a relationship with you. I don't want a relationship with her. I'm not for you and against her. I'm not for her and against you. But both of you need a savior. Both of you need a Lord. I don't know about you, but 
it gets easy to forget about all that Jesus has saved us from. Do you remember the day that you gave your life to Christ? Last service, we had a man baptize his girlfriend, and he just got baptized here a few months ago. And yesterday, their 10-year-old son was asking all these questions about God and Jesus, and they just need help answering those questions. Faith is taking off like wildfire in that home among them. And it's so fun to watch. It's so cool to watch. But do you remember when you first gave your life to Jesus? Do you remember how far from God you were? Do you remember how you felt in that moment when you finally said, I need a savior? Jesus is standing at the crossroads saying, man, I want all people to know me. Look at verse 46. He says, you did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves a little. Let's just unpack this because this is like, this is worth all your time today and I thank you for giving us some time today. But first of all, notice this. Jesus says, her sins have been forgiven. Who has the power to forgive sins? God. In fact, Jesus makes the religious leaders angry many, many times with phrases just like this. When he heals the paralytic, if you remember the story in Mark where the friends bring him up and take him down to the roof and tear out the roof and literally lower him down. And Jesus says, get up, I tell you, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and religious leaders are like, who are you to forgive sins? And he's like, well, just so you know who I am, go ahead and get up and walk. And everybody's like, wait, which is harder to do? Forgive a man's sins or make him walk when he's paralyzed? And that's the point. The one who can make people walk has to have significant power. He has to be God in the flesh. How do I know? Because he forgives sins. There is a lie out there, and it's in the media today, and you'll find it if you Google, that the religious leaders of 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 1,700 years ago, inserted Jesus being God back into the text. And if that is true, you would have to eliminate almost all of the Bible because it is so obvious in the way that Jesus speaks. He's not just a moral teacher. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good man. He's not just kind or merciful. He's not just trying to show us a better way. He is actually literally God with us, and he's not afraid to be that. And so he says your sins have been forgiven because he has the right to forgive sins and him alone. Now here's also powerful. He says her great love has shown she's forgiven. Shown it. She wasn't forgiven because she washed his feet with her hair. She was washing his feet with her hair because she was forgiven. And that's the whole point he's trying to make to Simon. Simon, when you realize the depth of your own depravity, the depth of your own sin, you'll go as far as it takes to let God know how much you love him. You will shame yourself, embarrass yourself in front of others. You wouldn't even care because you just want him to know how thankful you are that he forgave you. But don't miss this little nugget we've been forgiven of little, we love little. I think there's two things going on here. Number one, she clearly has sinned a lot. He's clearly not the deep of a sinner that she is. And Jesus is saying, Simon, I love her. And look how much she loves me back. But secondarily, I believe what he's saying is, Simon, you're not as perfect as you think you are. 
So if the reason that we don't engage with our neighbors is because we're too busy judging them, too busy not seeing them because we think we're better than them, then let us go back to the Savior. Let us go back and remember who we are. We are sinners saved by grace through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God so that no one can boast. But here's another thing. Verse 48, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. <clears throat> do you guys remember John three sixteen? Maybe you don't know it. Maybe you're visiting with us. I, I wanna encourage you later. I want you to do this. Google Tim Tebow, John three sixteen. Just do that later. There's this fascinating game. It's called the three sixteen game because all of his stats at the end of the game came out to like three one six. It is crazy. You just go look it up. In that game, he had put these black marks under his eyes and it said three sixteen. In that game, like Google had millions and millions and millions of people looking up, what is 316? Like we don't know what it is. So I don't want to assume you know what it is. But if you've been a Christian for a long time, this is like the staple of our faith. Because John 3.16 says this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. But the next verse, John 3.17, the one that never gets talked about, and God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Let me say that one again. God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The reason we trust in Jesus is because we need a savior. Me, I, Matt Nickerson, I need a savior. And so do you. And the reason we trust in Jesus is not because we're afraid of judgment. It's because God didn't send him to condemn, but to save. But salvation is not found in being great morally like Simon. Salvation is certainly not found in sinful freedom, doing what I want when I want. Salvation is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And he stands in the gap between these two saying, I am here, trust me, believe in me. Your sins too can be forgiven. But at verse 49, the other guests, probably the other Pharisees, begin to say among themselves, who is this even forgives sins? They're wondering, they're pondering, but they're not taking an action step. And some of you are gonna listen to messages about Jesus your whole life and you're gonna get to the end. And my fear, my anxiety for you is you won't have ever taken that next step, that step of faith, that one that says, Jesus, I'm gonna trust you too. But why not today? Why not today? Verse 50, that Jesus looks at the woman and says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go. Real quick, uh, I've got a couple more things I want to say, but I want to stop, and I want to tell you how to give your life to Jesus. It's, it's really quite simple, but it'll take a lifetime to work out. Every relationship begins with a decision. Have you noticed that? Like, hey, I'm going to call you back. <laughs> or, hey, would you like to go out on Friday? You know, whatever it is. Like, every relationship begins with a decision. I'm gonna take the next step. Really, the first step that everybody has to cross is the step of faith. Let me just say real quick, what does it take to be saved? How much faith does it take? It takes enough to trust Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. That's it. I heard this analogy years ago. I think it's a great analogy. If you and I are on a plane together, let's say the pilot is my best friend in the world. I know all the hours, all the flights he's done. I know that he's been through some really tough stuff. I know he can't handle everything. You, however, just happen to buy a ticket and get on the plane and we're sitting next to each other. And all of a sudden, some significant turbulence comes up on the plane. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, I sure hope this pilot knows what he's doing. But you still got on the plane. 
you may only have 10% trust that the pilot knows what he's doing and knows where he's going. I may have 90% trust or 99% trust, but guess what? We're both on the plane together. Are you with me? What it takes to be saved is to put your full hope and your full trust in Jesus, but it only starts with a mustard seed, a tiny, tiny amount, and it can grow from there. It doesn't have to be everything it will be one day. It just starts with the first decision, I trust you. And you know what we do next? We actually take a step, literally. We say, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and my Savior. And just like Frank baptized his girlfriend last service, we go into the waters of baptism because what we're doing in that moment is we're saying, God, I'm giving you my life and I'm receiving your life back. So you take all my sin, whether it's 50 denarii worth of sin or whether it's 150 or whatever, 500 denarii worth of sin. Either way, I'm trusting you. And the water is so powerful because water from the beginning brought life. All the way back in the beginning, in the very beginning, one of the first things God did is he separated the water from the skies. Water throughout the scriptures is seen as uh, bringing life into the world. And we go into the waters of baptism, what we're doing is we're leaving the old us behind and we're coming alive in the new us. I want to invite any of you and anybody in here who wants to do that, at the end of the service, you come forward, you find somebody with a lanyard on, you go to our Connect Hub right outside these doors and just say, I'm ready to do that. Or if you're at home or in this room and you want to be a little more private about it, just text the word CONNECT to 317-565-4911. You can do this any day, anytime. Slide, guys, is at the very end of the presentation. If you just pop it up for me, hook me up. I jumped at the end and I'm jumping back. 317-565-4911. CONNECT. All right, now to the church, to the body of Christ. Let me just tell you a couple things real quick. If fear is driving your lack of interaction with your neighbors, I wanna encourage you to take a bold step and get over it. But here's my piece of wisdom for you. Don't be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Do you know what I mean? Any of you have drummers in your home or neighbors who are drummers and you can hear them through the walls? You know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Imagine like going like this and then trying to tell somebody you love them. Would they hear you? No, of course not. But that's the point. If we're busy not seeing, if we're busy judging, people can't hear the love of God through the noise. That's exactly what Paul's trying to get to in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says this. Verse one, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but I do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Do you see it? I can do the greatest things in the world, but if I'm not doing them in love, then why am I really doing them? And that's the point. We must love our neighbors because God first loved us. And as his love pours into us, our love overflows and pours out at others. And that allows me to deal with people who are opposite of me on either extreme and to love them still. And what is love? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy your neighbor's swimming pool or car or spouse does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. 
It's not easily angered. And it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. And the very next verse says, love never fails. With that in mind, I want to take us into a time of communion. I want to ask that you would pull out your communion. Go ahead and open up the top piece there and pull the bread out. If you're watching at home right now online, I want to encourage you to run and grab some, some sort of bread and preferably a red juice, like a grape juice, if you have any. This bread represents the body of Jesus. Like, I don't know where you are in your story today, but I want to encourage you today because you need a savior. And if you're a Christian, you've already got a savior. And he gave up his life for you because he loves you. And this juice represents his blood. So that when we eat this and drink this, you know what we're doing? We're eating and drinking our salvation again. And we're reminding ourselves, I am forgiven. I am redeemed. So whatever you need to bring to God right now, whatever shame sits before you, whatever pain, whatever help you need, I'm gonna start a prayer and I'm gonna hand it to you. And after you're done praying, I'm just gonna ask that you go ahead and take the bread, take the juice whenever you're ready. And then we'll close out our service singing to the God who loves us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is what it's all about right here, God. For you so loved the world that you gave your one and only son, that whoever believes in you would not die, but would have eternal life. Oh God, thank you for loving us, for rescuing us. God, would you forgive us of the times that we thought our sins weren't as great as other people's sins, that we were better than somebody else? God, would you forgive us of our hard-heartedness and closed-eyedness and our judgmentalism? God, would you move us and stir us with the love that we see in Jesus to love our neighbors in the same way we love ourselves? God, would you help us to create time and margin and space? And God, we love you. We thank you that your mercy is literally new every morning. So Father, hear these prayers now in Jesus' name.